Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. In Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now we're going to stop here, break this section down, and then we're going to continue into the next section as well tonight. So in this next section of Scripture, we see Jesus talking about the good tree and the bad tree, and the good fruit and the bad fruit. Actually, this next section of Scripture ties into one of the closing passages that we ended with last week. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 6. One of the passages we used in closing last week is going to be used to kind of help us tie together last week's study and launch into this week's. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 7. It says, For for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to so overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What this Hebrew writer is saying here is, is the land falls, uh, so the rain falls on the land and the land receives it. Some parts of the land springs up and produces a crop that's useful and helpful. Other parts of the land produce just thorns and thistles and weeds. And what he says is, is how we respond to God and his word will give evidences of whether or not we got it or not, whether or not we're saved or not. And this ties back to what Jesus is doing back here in Matthew chapter, chapter 12. He's talking to a group of people who are not believers at this time. He, he calls them a brood of what? Vipers. And he's saying, look, either the tree's good or it's not. Because if the tree's good, the fruit's going to be good. And if the fruit's good, then the tree's good. If the tree's bad, the fruit's going to be bad. And he then goes on and he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How we respond shows which way have we, we've responded to the Holy Spirit's drawing us. Remember last week we looked at the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and now the only sin that wasn't already covered by Jesus is when the Spirit of God calls you to salvation and you reject it. When you reject it, that's the only sin not already covered by Jesus. And therefore, when you reject the offer of God to cover all of your sins, you, as you're going to see later tonight, you're now accountable for all of your sins. And so the Spirit of God is drawing everyone. We dealt with that last week. There's no one that's not drawn by the Spirit of God. But how we respond to that drawing will be evidenced, and this is where we're going to go tonight, by what comes out of our mouth. Because what comes out of your mouth comes actually from where? Your heart. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to talk to us about that. Go to Luke chapter 6. All right, 
for those of you that can't hear what Susan's saying, she said, if you're saved and, and, and sealed by the Spirit, what comes out of your heart is only determined by whether or not you're walking and abiding. And the answer to your, your, your or statement is yes. Hang on. <laughs> We've got to lay a little more foundation, and then we'll get to where you are. All right? Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 44. In Luke 6, verses 43 through 44, Jesus says, He said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So again, here we see this foundation. God says you're going to be judged by everything that you say because what you say is going to be an evidence of what's in your heart and your heart is where it all is really coming from. Now again, like Susan just brought out, be real careful. Don't run off and say, I'm in trouble. I thought you were saying I was sealed by the Spirit last week. Now you're going to make me wonder because sometimes I don't say things I should say. Stick with me. Let the whole of Scripture build your theology. Don't let preachers take a verse here or there to try to mess with you. But let's let the Scripture speak. Out of the abundance of your heart is what your, where your mouth speaks. Years ago, I actually preached a series when I was pastor here from the book of James, and I entitled it, What's in Your Bucket? And what I explained to people was, as I held a big five-gallon paint bucket, I said, what's in this bucket? Of course, nobody knows because you can't see. And I illustrated to them that the only way you'll know what's in this bucket is to, one, look inside, which we really can't do inside each other. Another way would be to whack it hard, have it go through a trial of some sort, and see what comes out. <laughs> How we respond in the midst of a trial shows what's really inside. And another way could be also just to pour it out, you know, and let just naturally have what's in there overflow and come out. We're, that's what Jesus is trying to get to, is he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's talking to the religious leaders who think they're okay. They think they're righteous. They think they're good fruit. And he's saying, actually, anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit rejects the Spirit's work, says bad things about the Spirit, that actually shows where their heart really is. And that's what he's trying to get to. Go to James chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 12. I had a man come to me today at a funeral that I was doing, and he said he wanted prayer because he was teaching a Bible study class now. And he said, I'm held in higher accountability all of a sudden, and I want you to pray for me. And I love the fact that he was taking very seriously what God had asked him to do. Because here in James chapter 3, James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small part of your body, a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, our body parts, staining the whole body, yet setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So in this section, as Paul's writing to Christians now, he said, first off, don't all try to be teachers, because those of us who teach are going to be held in stricter accountability. Because God's looking at what comes out of our mouth. Because out of our mouth will show where we really are. And he said, don't think it's a small thing. And he says some very interesting things. He says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. It's full of deadly poison. No human being can tame the tongue. How many times have we thought to ourselves, oh, I, was, I, I was just joking. I, I didn't do any damage. I didn't mean anything by it. Yet, he says, watch out. And by the way, if no human being can tame the tongue, what, what do we need? We need help from someone outside of us, correct? <laughs> That's what we're going to get to, so stick around. We're not, we're not going to beat you up too much yet. Go to, go to verse 13. Did you catch the yet part? But go to James 3. Look at verses 13 through 18. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So again, he goes on and he says, look, guys, don't pretend to be spiritual and full of quote unquote wisdom but then still live like the world with jealousy and selfish ambition and all that stuff. That's not what the Lord looks like. That's not what spiritual wisdom looks like. He says, but actually wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. And those people actually produce a harvest of righteousness. So here now James is talking to Christians kind of like Jesus was talking to unbelievers. Jesus is talking to the unbelievers and he's saying, can a good tree produce good, bad fruit? And can a bad tree produce good fruit? You better watch your words because out of your heart is what your speak, speech is coming from. But then James talking to Christians says, you still got to be kind of careful of your tongue. Now, does that mean that if I, as a Christian, have bad things come out of my mouth and jealousy and selfish ambition or... Coarse jesting, as the Bible talks about, that means that my heart's not good. Well, that's why you let the Holy Scripture teach you. But there is a difference between what the flesh looks like and what the Spirit looks like. Go ahead, Bill. You talked about being a teacher. You're a gift to teach you, there's no doubt about it. We've talked. But do you know it all? No, ma'am. Okay. I mean, no, sir. See, I don't, I don't even know if you're male or female. So, uh, no, I don't know it all. Because there are 20,000 denominational Protestant churches, everybody has different things. I, I think this passage is talking about not just teachers, uh, you, you're going to get it all right. He's saying teachers that purposely teach. Oh, without question, that's in the here as well. But what we're pulling out here is the fact that he said also in here, he says, look, my brothers from the same mouth can't come blessing and cursing. He's still trying to get to the heart, and here's why. And I'll give you a little commercial to kind of help you be able to stick with me here so that Satan doesn't mess with you. 
I'm going to show you from the scriptures tonight that if you have been born again, if you have been sealed by the Spirit of God, he who began the good work in you will finish it. We ended with that last week, how that same Spirit that draws us is the one who seals us and holds on to us. But at the same time, that same Spirit that saved us and justified us is also in the process of sanctifying us. He doesn't just save you and say, you're good now. There's still work that he wants to do in that old flesh that still we're wrestling with. And Jesus is speaking to the unbelievers at that time in, in, in the passage we looked at. And he's saying, you guys think you're okay. What's coming out of your hearts? And at the same time, as we know from our study of this Matthew, when he was doing the Sermon on the Mount, you think you're okay because you haven't uh, committed adultery. Uh, have you ever looked lustfully at a woman? Because he goes to the heart. You say you're okay because you haven't murdered. But have you ever had anger, hatred toward your brother? God's looking at your heart. And in the same way, he's trying to get to the heart. And for those of us who are Christians... As I'm going to show you later on, as Jesus said in Matthew 12, we'll be held accountable for every idle word that does not apply to us because of the fact that his grace has covered our sins. Yet, even though I'm born again, even though I'm saved, God is still trying to show me, a child of God who is eternally secure, that he's not done working on me. He who began the good work will finish it. I'm in the process of being sanctified, and one of the ways that he tries to show me where he is and where I am in his work of processing on me in sanctification is to show me what? My heart by my words. Do you see the difference? There's a balance here. Exactly. One of our greatest callings, she said, is to be a good steward of our heart. And how we do that is, is we acknowledge what God shows us and we give it to him and he makes the work. God shows us a lot of stuff, but does he do it to beat us up? When he points out that we're still not there yet, does he do it to make us shamed? And not? No, he does it because he loves us and he's wanting to open our eyes to what he's trying to accomplish. We should actually see it as a good thing. That's why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that when we're being disciplined by the Lord, it's a good thing because it means we're his children. And it's not always pleasant at the time, but it produces a peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Again, written to Christians. Look at verses 16 through 26. Paul, writing to Christians, starts describing to them the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk in the spirit. You see, there's a capital S. That's the Holy Spirit. Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. When we walk in the flesh, it looks like this. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a little scary. We'll come back to that. But the fruit or the evidence of the Spirit in us is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, if we've been born again by the Spirit, let us also learn how to keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, 
provoking one another and envying one another. So here again, Paul's explaining to the church that there's evidence of those who are in the spirit and those who are in the flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as Paul's writing to the church and he's dealing with all this division in chapter 1, he says, some of you are all divided, saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas. Others say, I follow Christ. And then later on, he goes on and talks about those divisions some more. And, and then he says to him in chapter 11, when he's talking about how their divisions have manifested in the Lord's Supper, he said, I hear there are divisions among you. And no doubt, I believe that there should be divisions to show which of you have the spirit or not. There actually should be a difference among us. Yet at the same time, please hear this. God is not going to judge you and me according to every idle word, like Jesus said in Matthew 12 if we are his children already and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, all blasphemy and everything will be forgiven men. Real quickly, go with me to uh, Psalm. I'm going to jump ahead in my notes. Go to Psalm 32. Look at verses 1 and 2. Look at Psalm 32. By the way, this is in the Old Testament, folks. God, the gospel of God's grace has been all along throughout the whole book. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is what? Forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. When it talks about in your spirit being no deceit, it's talking about you're, being will, you're willing to be honest. If the spirit of God's trying to convict you and you act like you're okay, is, is, do you have deceit in your spirit? Of course you do. But if you're willing to say, I'm a mess, but God's forgiven me, but he's working on me, is there deceit in your spirit? No, there's no deceit in your spirit because you're willing to acknowledge, I'm not trying to deceive you. I'm not trying to be false. I am, by God's grace, under his blood, yet at the same time, he's still working on me. And blessed is the one whose sin is covered, whose transgressions are forgiven. So if he covers our sin and erases our sin and separates us as far as the east is from the west, will God ever hold a Christian accountable for every idle word? No, he can't. Because if he's going to hold you accountable for every idle word then it wasn't covered by his blood. You understand? So now this is where we, we, we talked about at the beginning, is being able to hear for those of us who are, have the Spirit, the difference between what he's saying to those who don't know him and what he's saying to those who do. Remember back in Hebrews, our section we read, he said, look, land receives the rain that falls on it. Some of it responds well, others doesn't. But we believe better things of you, things that belong to salvation. All through the scriptures, in the book of Galatians, like we just read, in the book of James, like we just read, you'll see these passages that look like, oh, he might be saying you might be lost. No, no, no. He's saying, I don't know who in the audience out there, where they are spiritually. We're going to get to that, by the way, when we get to chapter 13 coming up, when we get to the parable of the soils and the parable of the wheat and the weeds and the weeds among the wheat. When we stand here and preach to a room full of people like this, we could automatically assume that everybody here is saved and everybody's a Christian. I mean, because, I mean, good man, Jim, they, they're showing up on a Tuesday night for a Bible study. They have to be a Christian. Otherwise, they, why would they be here? You don't assume that. And I don't know where you stand. And so I'm going to, at the same time that I encourage the believers, I'm going to also warn those in here, or might be listening online, 
Let the Spirit of God show you where your heart really is. Oh, by the way, I'll give you a little commercial for when we get to chapter 13. That's not your job to determine who's got the Spirit and who's in the flesh. I don't think she's saved at all. Stay away from that stuff. That's not your call. Yes, ma'am. Great question. Big, great question. Her question was, how does the not being accountable tie in with the rewards? If you can hang on. We're going to get there in another page. Hang on. But Sheila's bringing up a great point. Yeah. There's eternal accountability, and there's also a loss of rewards. That's why we should, don't sit here tonight and say, oh, I'm a Christian. I don't have to listen to what Jesus is talking about. He's talking to the unbelievers. No, no, no. He's talking to believers here, too. Go back to James chapter 4. We just finished in chapter 3. Go back to James chapter 4. Listen to what he says to Christians. In chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Who's he talking to, Christians or non-Christians? Obviously Christians. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So there's this balance. And as we look at this topic, you've got to let the Spirit of God speak to you where you are. And I don't know where you are, but God does. Folks, listen to me. If you are un, an unbeliever and you have not been sealed by the Spirit of God, you will face a judgment one day in which you will be held accountable for every single idle word you have ever spoken. And I'll share about that in just a second. If you are a believer, you will not be held accountable on that day of judgment when the lost people are judged for every idle word because by God's grace our sins have been forgiven. But... In the same way, though, there still isn't going to be, there's going to be a judgment seat of Christ for those of us who are his children. We won't be judged on whether or not we get into heaven or not and have to pay for all our sins. But we will be judged by our Lord as to whether or not we allowed him to do in that sanctification process that what he was wanting to accomplish. Having what he began come to full fruition. That we would actually move into the fullness of that relationship with Christ. That the Spirit of God who already indwells us and has sealed us may be seen in and through our lives. And that is a process that He works on us and He's going to be showing us. Just because you're saved, does that mean you're walking in the Spirit? No. So I say, if we live by the Spirit, been born again, let us walk in the Spirit. He actually goes on in the book of Ephesians to say, don't be ignorant, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine or under the control of alcohol, but be filled under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
So as God's speaking to us tonight, there's some of you out there that he's going to be showing you you're not saved, and he's actually showing you your real heart, and you haven't put full faith in Jesus Christ. There are many of us who are saved who are here, and he's saying to us, just because you're saved doesn't mean that I'm not done working on you, and I want to show you where your heart is. And one of the greatest ways that I can show you where your heart is is by showing you what comes out of your mouth, what your reaction is. When your bucket gets hit, what comes out? Is it flesh or is it spirit? If it's the flesh and you're saved, what are we to do? We humble ourselves before God and we say, Lord, I'm still under your control. I'm still under, I work under process. Would you please make this change in me? I don't want to react this way to my spouse. I don't want to react this way to my, to my boss. I don't want to react this way to my children. I don't want my first reaction to be the flesh. I want it to be my, your spirit. But I can't do that because no man can tame the tongue. But you have... And you can. And if I walk in the spirit, I won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Many Christians have been taught to try to live right. Stop saying these things. Stop doing these things and try to do the right thing. Let me save you some time. You can't do it. But if you on a daily basis say, Christ, you're the only one that's ever lived the Christian life. And you live in me and you want to live it again through me today, and you want to do this work, begin to show me my heart. Show me what's really there. And when you do, may I understand you're showing it because you love me, and you want me to just give it to you and make that change. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, whenever I read that section in James chapter 3 about the bit in the horse's mouth and... and uh, uh, the little rudder on the ship and all that. I remember years ago when I was a young preacher boy in seminary and on weekends I would travel around the state of Louisiana and sometimes Mississippi to go preach. And I went to this one little church in Louisiana and there was a lady during the children's sermon time that came up and she gave a children's sermon where she called all the kids to the front and they sat down there with her and she had with her a horse's bit. And she also had a, a model of a big ship, a big container ship, and it had that little rudder on the bottom. And she did a whole lesson on, do you see this little piece of metal? You can turn a whole 2,000-pound horse around with this little bit. And you see this big old container ship? They're turned around and controlled by this little rudder. They're small things, but they really accomplish a lot. They're very powerful. In the same way, God's put a tongue in our mouths and they're little, but they're really powerful. And if we don't let God control them, we can do a lot of damage with that little thing. Well, when the sermon and the service was all over, I ran straight to that young lady and I said, those were some of the greatest illustrations I have ever seen in my life. Where did you get the idea for the rudder and the bit? <laughs> and she said to me, um, preacher, I think it's in the book of James, chapter 3. And I'm like... Well, I guess my mouth just showed how much I've been reading my Bible. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verses 9 through 11. But do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Remember earlier we saw those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom. Remember we saw that in Galatians? And he's, as you're going to see, it's not whether or not you've done those things means you're not in the kingdom. But if that is your lifestyle, you better double check whether or not you got the spirit. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such 
were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Folks, the issue here when we talk about what comes out of your mouth is not an issue of perfection. We saw that earlier in the book of James about the tongue. It's not about perfection. The issue is, over a long period of time, as people watch your life, or the Spirit of God reveals to you what's going on in your life, do you see evidence at all of the Spirit or only the flesh? If you see no evidence of the Spirit but only the flesh, you're in that group that Jesus is talking to you. You brood of vipers. If you do see evidence of the Spirit, there's still some evidence of the flesh, but you do see evidence of the Spirit, you're in the other group. That group that Jesus is trying to work on to have him become man, more and more manifested in our lives. That that work that he began would be seen to grow. That's why Peter in 1 Peter chapter, uh, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 and following talks about adding to your faith goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control, for the, if these things are seen or increasing, they'll keep you from being ineffective in the world. You do realize Peter went from professing Christ to denying Christ within a few hours. You do understand that, right? Peter went from saying, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus saying, blessed are you, Simon, flesh and blood didn't open your eyes, but my Father's opened your eyes, and I tell you, you're now that new creation. You're Peter now. But then, just a few days, a few hours later, he says, never met the guy. Aren't we glad that it's an issue of over a long period of time and not a moment? Satan loves to come in those moments when the flesh is seen and not the spirit. Satan wants to come in at that moment and shame and attack and guilt and beat you up. Don't let him. Don't let him. Over a long haul, if people had to describe your life, what would they say? Do they see more evidence of the flesh or more evidence of the spirit? Go to James chapter 1. Look at verses 20 through, 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one's unstained, self unstained from the world. Again, James writing to Christians and he's saying to you, look, don't just be people that just hear the word, but be people that do it. But didn't we already say that you can't do it? But greater is he who's in you than he's in the world. Jesus, who has not only opened your eyes to the truth because you were blind, but he opened your eyes to the truth and you responded in faith and then he sealed you with his spirit, now lives within you in order to empower you to live out that life. When God opens your eyes to where your heart is, 
What's he trying to accomplish? What's he wanting you to do when he shows you? Listen, as a Christian, remember there are two groups of people. When a Christian, someone that has been saved, they've moved from death to life, they have the Spirit of God, but now they're in that sanctification process. When the Spirit of God reveals to a Christian where their heart still is, what is he wanting to accomplish? Okay, sanctification, but specifically, what's he wanting us to do? It, very good. Trust him more. It's not say, Lord, I'll do better. But to say, Lord, thank you. You've opened my eyes to the fact that there's an area that you're still working on. I can't fix it. <laughs> I can't fix it. But you can. And I humble myself. And I come to you. And the scripture says in the book of James chapter 4, when you do that, he will exalt you. He will do that work. He's doing it to show us. Folks, when you as a parent would point out to your kids things that you would like them to do a little better, is it because you wanted to beat them down or is it you wanted them to do better? Exactly. When God shows you areas, don't beat yourself up. Everything that comes to you from the hand of your father now that his wrath has been totally removed, everything that comes to you from the hand of your father is love, even when he points out that he's still got some work to do on you. Anybody that thinks that they're, not, that they're already all there, they've deceived themselves. And that's what the scripture's talking about. So God will speak to our hearts to show us whether or not we're really his. And on top of that, he'll speak to our hearts to show us what he wants to work on now. Do you see the importance of getting that whole issue of whether or not you're saved, settled, and taken care of, and done with, and putting that helmet of salvation on? Because now I don't have to sit there and listen to all these messages and go back to, am I really saved? Am I not saved? Am I really saved? Am I not saved? Anybody, has anybody lived like that in their Christian life? Am I the only one? Anybody here gone through that period of, am I saved? Am I not? Am I, am I not? I think we all have, haven't we? Some of the worst times in our life. But buddy, once the Spirit confirms in your heart that you're His, put on the helmet of salvation. It's part of the armor of God. So Satan can't attack you there anymore. And now that you know that you're His... When he says, okay, we got some work to do, you don't run to, maybe I'm not a Christian after all. Folks, listen to me. Satan wants to make you question if you're really saved. If you're not saved, Jesus will reveal that to you. You'll know it. There'll be no question, okay? God's not going to come and say, well, maybe you're not a Christian. Is that how God's going to do it? Or is he not lovingly going to say, you don't know me? And when he shows you don't know him, I hope you get that rectified. But he's not going to mess with you. He's clear. He's direct. Ask the people who, whom he described a brood of vipers. I think he's pretty clear and pretty direct. So let me ask you this question then. If on the day of judgment our sins have been covered by Jesus' blood, why on the day of judgment will people have to give an account for every careless word they speak? Back in Matthew chapter 12, let me read it to you again. Look at verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Why will, why will, I've already given you a little hint, why will the lost world on this day of judgment be held accountable for every careless word? I'm sorry? Okay, that's tied to the second part. First off, remember, our words show our what? Our words show our hearts. And on top of that, if we've never received our covering for our sins through Jesus' death and his life, that means biblically you're going to have to pay for everything you've done. 
And therefore, if you're in that lost category, on that day of judgment, you're not only going to go to hell because you rejected God's plan for salvation and the only way you can be saved, you're also, along with that, now going to have to pay for every sin that you committed since you said, I won't receive God's repayment for my sin. I'll take care of it myself, now you're, which is impossible. And now you're going to be accountable for every careless word. Now, as a quick aside, and I'm going to show you that scripturally real quick. As a quick aside, does God care about careless words amongst believers? Of course. That's why the Bible says that we're to be quick to listen and low, slow to speak. Because that way we can allow the Spirit of God to be that filter as to what comes out. For a believer, though, we won't be judged for every careless word in that sense. But if we don't allow him to do what he wants to do by showing us careless words that are showing our heart, and he's in the process of sanctifying us, we're going to miss out on reward for eternity that is going to be given to those who allowed Jesus to do in them what he wanted to do in the fullness of his plan for their lives. Go to Revelation chapter 20 real quick. Look at verses 11 through 15. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. I want you to hear clearly, this judgment that we're going to look at is not the judgment seat of Christ. This judgment is the judgment of all the wicked. At the very, very end, the end of the millennial kingdom, God's going to judge all the wicked at the same time. Some are right now in a place called Hades. It's a place of fiery torment until the lake of fire. There are some angels that are in a place called Tartarus, which is also a place of fiery judgment for those angels that left their position. Those who die apart from being forgiven by Jesus don't go be with the Lord. They go to a place of torment called Hades. That's why in Luke 16, you see the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus died and he went into the presence of God. The rich man was buried and he went straight to Hades. Listen to what Revelation 20 says in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. Let me ask you a quick question. If God, and this is Jesus, if God, and this is Jesus, is sitting on the throne, and even the sky and the earth want to get away from him, what's the attitude of this judgment? Wrath. This is the wrath that's going to be poured out on all who reject what God's done in providing for their sin through Jesus. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a double check if your name's not in the book of life, and by the way, if you're at this judgment, God doesn't make any mistakes, your name's not going to be in the book of life. And the reason they're even checking the book of life is just to show you you had a chance to get in this book through faith in Jesus, but you're not in this book. And because of that, now you're going to be held accountable for all of those sins that you committed in your whole life. And that's why they'll be judged for every idle word. Now, as believers, God still cares about idle words. But we won't face the judgment and the wrath of God because of that. We're going to miss out on reward. You take the illustration with your kids. They're your children. They'll always be your children. You love them. You'll never you know, renounce them. But you might have planned to take them for ice cream. 
and you say to them, hey, why don't we work on this one little area? And if you make the changes, we'll go get some ice cream. If the kid says, eh, no thanks, are you going to take them for ice cream? Hopefully not. They don't stop being your child, but they miss out on the reward. Some of us are missing out on some reward that God has for us as he shows us things and we don't allow him to make those changes. But if we are humble enough to say, Lord, I'm not there yet. I said something I shouldn't have said. I thought something I shouldn't have thought. I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. I can't fix it, but you will. And I I ask for your forgiveness. I submit myself to God. I resist the devil. He's going to leave and... You're going to exalt me, and you're going to do your work, and we're going to get somewhere in this. It doesn't change by you trying to do better, but acknowledging in your heart where you really are and saying, okay, Lord, let's go from here. You show me this because you love me. Folks, I cannot share to you how exciting it was for me as a Christian to realize God didn't expect me to do better. He just wanted me to acknowledge what he already knew and say, help. Help. And buddy, he's pretty powerful, and he's able to do some pretty cool stuff. By the way, if you try to be slow to speak and quick to listen, it will also reveal whether or not you have the Spirit of God or not. Because if everybody in the world, lost and saved, all just tried to be quiet, think, and then speak, would they, every word that comes out of everyone's mouth be the right thing? No, because only by the Spirit of God can righteousness be produced. The fruit of the Spirit can only be produced by... The Spirit <clears throat> might be a good way for you to find out where you really are, is try to never say a bad thing. Good luck with that. Go back to Matthew 12. Look at verses 38 through 42. <clears throat> then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. We're going to try to get through this as much as we can. Hopefully we'll finish it. If not, we'll pick up next week. But here's a question for you. Why do you think it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign from God? Why do you think Jesus said it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign from God? Okay, very good. He's God. He's standing right there. Go ahead. All right, idolatry and unfaithfulness, and the answer is yes, but we need to clarify that a little bit, because as you know, those are words we all know, but what do they look like here? Go ahead. Cindy said, because he's God, and he's standing right there. And that's close to where we're going, Cindy. Listen closely. We've already dealt with this last week. Has God revealed himself to all creation? Yes. The answer's right. You got quiet. You're like, maybe, maybe we got it wrong. Yes, no, he's revealed himself in many ways. And when when we say, not that many wins, when we say, I need you to do more, we're in essence saying, you're not doing it good enough for me. 
you're not good at revealing yourself. And on top of that, when we say to Almighty God, the Creator, here's how I want you to do it. We're making ourselves God and Him our puppet. Folks, we've all done this. Don't sit back and say, whew, good thing I haven't done that. No, we all have. How many of you have ever said, but Lord, if you'll just do this, then I'll... Gideon was like, oh, I, I, I know what I'm doing, but I'm scared, but I, I, I don't know what else to do. Listen, the Bible says, don't test God. Don't put God to a test. Yet Jesus himself, God himself says, test me in this. Test me and see if I won't open the windows of heaven. Test me. Give the tithe, like I said. Watch what I do. There are times God says, test me, but doesn't the Bible say, don't put God to a test? Yes, listen closely. When God sets the parameter of the test, test him. Because he set the test, and you can hold him to it. Don't yet let you be the one who determines the parameter of the test. When you say, if you'll do this, then I'll believe, or if you do this, then you are the one determining the test, and that's putting God to a test. Do you see the difference? It, definitely. Now, at the same time, that's why he says an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. In other words, you're saying, I don't do it enough. I've not done it well enough for you. I've not revealed myself. Haven't we already read that Jesus was doing all these miracles and these signs and they wouldn't believe even though they saw all these signs? And they'll be held accountable according to how much he's revealed. And then they say, with Jesus standing right there, someone greater than Solomon, someone greater than, than Jonah. With God, like you said, Cindy, standing himself right there, there go, yeah, it's not enough for me. But guess what? When you say that's not enough for me, what you've already done is not enough for me, I need you to do some more, you've just shown your heart. You still want to be God. Go to Luke chapter 16. Oh, by the way, all of us still have that problem, even those of us who are saved. I still don't trust him as I ought. I still would like him to do things my way. And if I said I didn't, I'd be deceiving myself and not surrendering to what he's trying to do in my life. And Luke 16, look at verses 19 to 31. The story I referenced earlier where Lazarus goes in the presence of God and the rich man ends up in the place of torment called Hades. Let's just look at it real quickly. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. By the way, they weren't being nice. Back in that day, there were packs of wild dogs. Well, as someone put it to me years ago, if a Doberman is licking you, he's not being friendly. He's basting you. All right. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this... 
Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. By the way, for those of you that were taught that there's such a thing as purgatory, where people go into a place of torment, but you can pray them out of there, pay enough money to the church, light enough candles, and you can pray them out of purgatory. Look at what Jesus said. There is a chasm that has been fixed between the place of torment and the place of reward, and no one goes from heaven to hell like they'd want to, and no one goes from the place of torment to the place of righteousness. When you die, it's been settled. There is no purgatory. But look what happens. The rich man said, I beg you, Father, send, to, send, to, to him, send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, when, when God says through Abraham, they have Moses and the prophets, what's he saying? Uh, they've got the scriptures. Listen to what he says. He said, no, no Father Abraham, that's not enough. If someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Referencing what he was about to do. Listen, God has revealed himself. It's an adulterous generation that says he has to do more to prove himself to us. Go to Job chapter 40, look at verses 6 through 8. If you study the book of Job, you'll see that as great as Job started out, a little bit later on in the middle chapters, he starts to fuss a little bit about God. He called God unfair. God's so big and powerful and strong, man doesn't have a chance to have a say and defend himself. And Man, I just wish I could just have a, a, a few time, moments just to talk to him face to face and I could defend myself. In Job chapter 40, look at verses 6 through 8. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? I don't want to show of hands, because we'd all have to raise our hand. But how many of you have ever done that to God? And they say, Jim, I haven't done that. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I were God, I would have done it differently? Have you ever had the thought... How could a loving God let X happen? You condemned him to justify yourself. Folks, it's an evil and adulterous generation that demands a sign from God. You've say, you're saying he hasn't done enough to reveal himself. The Bible says he has. All men are without excuse through creation. He's revealed himself in our hearts. His spirit is able to open the eyes, and he's done that in everyone. Have they heard? Of course they did. His word has gone on all the earth. Creation. The gospel's been preached in the whole creation, the Bible says. And God is so loving that even at the end of the tribulation, with all those signs being fulfilled, prophecy being fulfilled in their day, He still sends an angel to preach and hover over the whole world and preach the eternal gospel to everyone one last time. He is a wonderful, awesome, loving, merciful God, and He's done enough. But when we say He needs to do more... He's showing us our hearts. Go for it.
Okay, this is a great question. See, her question is, how many times as, as Christians are we, we say, Lord, give me a sign that I've heard you right and all this stuff. There's a difference between what you're talking about there and, Lord, you have to do this. This is the sign that I want from you. First off, when it goes back to we're wrestling over a decision, we're, we, we go to the scriptures because he has spoken. He's revealed. His word is there. But when it comes to do I do this versus that, the spirit will lead and guide. And we should be watching for that. We can't set what it is. Do you see what I'm saying? We can't set what it is. And so the Bible also says that one of the greatest signs that he will already give us, and he's promised us that, is peace. As we pray about a decision. A lot of times when I'm wrestling with something, I'm going to just be honest with you. And I don't know if it's A or B. I imagine that I'm going to make the decision A. And I should literally, in my mind, think it's A. And I wait for a peace. If the Spirit gives me peace, okay, it's A. If I get that check in my spirit, and you know what I'm talking about, I know it's not A, then I think, okay, it's B then. And I listen for peace. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ be the one that umpires. So we don't even need a sign when he's already promised us what the sign is. It's peace. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace that passes understanding will guard in your hearts and minds. So I say first and foremost, just listen for the peace that he's already promised. Years ago, I was a young preacher boy in seminary in New Orleans and on staff at a church in New Orleans where I one of eight pastors, and I was chomping at the bit to preach more and actually preached so much whenever I could outdoors and at homeless shelters in New Orleans and such that I actually damaged my vocal cords and ended up having throat surgery because a, a nodule grew up on my vocal cords. And, but during that time period, the senior pastor of the church came to me, and I had been working on Tuesday nights at that church. They had a gymnasium, and a lady was driving a church van into some of the uh, rougher sections of town there and picking up these boys, teenage boys, and bringing them back to our gym. And we'd feed them pizza, and we'd also let them play basketball in our gym for a couple hours. But the rule was they couldn't play basketball until they sat through a Bible study lesson with me for an hour. And then I had just come out of playing college basketball as 100 pounds ago, so just try to imagine. I actually could play with these kids back then, and I would play basketball with these young boys for two hours, and great relationships were developed, and God was doing such great things that the pastor felt like we were to start a church there in the black section of town. And he asked me, and he said, Jim, would you be, you've already built the relationship, would you be the pastor of this mission church? I was so excited. It's like, yeah, I'll do it. And I went home, and that night was one of the worst nights of my entire life, sleeping wise, because the Spirit said, I didn't tell you, and I had no peace, no peace at all. And I had to go back in that next day with my tail between my legs and say to the pastor, I spoke too soon. It's no, he will direct us. We don't have to get a sign. The signs he's promised are already there. It's peace. It's peace. Now, does he do these other things sometimes, like a rainbow for Noah or walking between the pieces for Abraham? Yes, he does. And those are wonderful times. But don't say, you have to do this. Do you see the difference? He's already powerful. He already knows. He will reveal. He will reveal. Gideon, when he said, I need to sign, and God humbly, amazingly, does it. And Gideon goes, yes, that's not good enough for me. Please forgive me. Don't kill me. But could you? And God knew in that situation the heart of Gideon and he was working with him. But the Bible says, don't be the one who determines what God has to do or else you won't believe. I think for the sake of time, we're going to stop here. We'll pick up this section next week. 
Folks, let me encourage you as we close tonight with this. The first thing is, are you saved or not? Get that settled. Because his spirit will testify to your spirit that you're his child. He has not given us the spirit of fear. He gives us the spirit of adoption as sons, and we can cry, Abba, Father. At the same time, he wants us to know that we're his. Once that's been settled, now, when he says, we got some work to do, is he upset? Is he angry? No, he's a loving father trying to move you forward and learning how to walk in the spirit. And so humble yourself and say, I'm not the man I'm supposed to be, but God, you're going to give me the grace. I'm not going to ignore you. I'm not going to tune you out. I'm going to listen and humble myself. I'm not the wife or the husband I'm supposed to be. Well, God, you're showing me things. I'm not the father that I'm supposed to be or the mother that I'm supposed to be. I'm not the friend that I'm supposed to be. Don't let Satan beat you up at that moment. God's not beating you up. He's already taken care of all of his wrath. It's gone. Poured it out on his son. Now he's wanting to work with you. And one of the ways he shows you is when coarse jesting comes out of your mouth or bad thoughts or these. He's showing you what's still there. See, in Romans chapter 7, when Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, he says, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. By the way, has anybody else had those thoughts as well? Is anybody, am I not the only, am I, thank God I'm not the only one that has that same thing. But preachers have for years wrestled with, was Paul talking about before he was saved, or was he talking about after he was saved? And I've gone back and forth over the years, but I've got it settled in my heart now. You know why? In that passage, twice, Paul says, when I sin, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that lives in me. Listen closely. It's no longer I who do it. A transition has occurred. Before, it was him, because that's who he was. But he was set free. And now, even though we're saved, we still struggle with sin. Paul says, things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am, who will give me the victory? And his answer is what? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When your father shows you what's in your heart now, when your bucket gets hit and what comes out, he's doing it because he loves you and he's wanting to reward you for what he's allowed to do in the years to come. I love you. We'll talk about this some more next week. We'll see you then.